Hello, I'm Evan Reese, an Asia-Pacific analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is being brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. And they can literally watch our new technology taking off and landing and thinking that they're seeing UFOs. And it's a perfect disinformation campaign. The CIA just kind of chuckled and let it build its own momentum. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast. I'm Faisal Purvez. Many words in recent weeks have been dedicated to one of the most remarkable achievements in American history, man's first steps on the moon. The U.S. may have claimed to come for all mankind, but the events of July 1969 marked the culmination of a presidential resolution firmly anchored in a wartime, albeit a Cold War, objective. Far less appreciated are the many military plots and schemes aimed at countering the Soviets that never made it off the drawing board even though many were equally audacious, and just as implausible as the idea in 1962 to imagine the U.S. would win a race to the moon. The stories of these amazing plans are revealed in Vince Houghton's new book, Nuking the Moon, and other intelligence schemes and military plots left on the drawing board. Stratfor's chief security officer, Fred Burton, spoke to Houghton about the best and worst. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Vince Houghton, who has written... Nuking the Moon. Vince, thanks for being with Stratfor Talks today. I appreciate you having me on. I thought your book was amazing, but I also think, Vince, for the benefit of our listeners, for you to talk a little bit about uh, your job, because I think you've got one of the coolest jobs in the world. <laughs> yeah, so I'm the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., so if you haven't had a chance to come visit us, uh, well, you haven't missed anything except for in the last two months. We are brand new. We just reopened. Uh, bounce from downtown D.C. to a part of D.C. called Lanfon Plaza, where we greatly increased the size of the museum, dramatically increased the size and scope of the museum. So come check us out. Um, my job on a day-to-day basis is the content expert for the museum, uh, which I wish I could tell you what my daily you know, normal day look like, but there's no such thing. Uh, we just we just spent the last five and a half years building a new museum, so I don't even know what I do on a day-to-day basis. I'm trying to figure that out as I go along. <laughs> well, uh, I know I was at your uh, old museum. Uh, you guys were kind enough to host me for uh, my book release for Chasing Shadows, and I must say that uh, for anybody that listens to this podcast, that the International Spy Museum is a must-see in the D.C. area. And Vince, uh, you also host a podcast that I listen to called SpyCast. Tell us a little bit about that. So SpyCast is um, a podcast that we run out of the museum. Uh, It's our way to expand the museum's content to a national and international audience. It's basically me sitting down with anyone I find interesting to talk about something espionage-related or tangential to espionage-related, everybody from case officers to former directors or actually now current directors of agencies – uh, there's a new one every week on Tuesday, um, and uh, no matter what your interest, uh, usually you'll find something that, that fits your life uh, on, on SpyCast. I've tried to make it as eclectic as possible so that no matter where you're coming from, there's something interesting to you. 
Now let's talk about your book, uh, Nuking the Moon. Uh, when you first hear that title, uh, you kind of sit back and think, oh my goodness, what is uh, the U.S. government up to now? How did you come up with that title? And The title was a collective effort, uh, as you might know from writing books between me and the publisher. Um, I had a much wonkier title to begin with, and they laughed at me and said, no one will ever buy this. Um, <laughs> but it's in reference to one of the chapters in the book. And this book is actually has 21 chapters, and don't don't let that freak you out. It's not a thousand-page book. They're all very short, short stories about U.S. and some British and actually one German plot uh, that was uh, researched, funded, attempted, tested, but never put into practice for one reason or another. And these are operations, technologies, missions. And one of them was, in fact, to detonate a thermal nuclear weapon on the moon. Uh, and this was right in the wake of Sputnik, and it was an attempt or at least an idea uh, and an attempt to make the United States show the world that we were still kings when it came to science and technology. And thankfully, it never left the drawing board like all the other stories in this book. I can only imagine uh, those uh, staff meetings where folks sit around discuss that. Uh, must have been fascinating to be a part of back in the 50s. Well, you, you hope that the staff meeting is relatively lower level. <laughs> Officers, and these aren't like the chief of staff, but in some cases, some of the stories in this book made it all the way to the Oval Office before the president finally said, no, we're not doing this. Uh, and those, those are the scarier ones, right, where lots and lots of people with stars on their shoulders decided it was a good idea, and finally it was one person saying, no, let's not do this. And actually, in some cases in the book, no one said no. In some cases in the book, just the events superseded the plan, to so like the war ended or a new technology was invented, and no one actually stepped up and said, we shouldn't be doing this. Well, I know the one you're referring to, if memory serves me correct, from reading Nuking the Moon, uh, centered on uh, operations against uh, Castro and Cuba, didn't they? Yes, yeah, so Operation Northwoods, which is, has been a lightning rod for conspiracy theorists, because essentially the U.S. government, the military, and the CIA were planning a false flag operation against Cuba. Basically, they knew that Castro wasn't stupid enough to attack us, and so we were going to make it look like he attacked us by using Cuban exiles, addressing them up as Cuban army soldiers, and attacking Guantanamo Bay, and maybe even sinking a ship in Havana Harbor, or having terrorist attacks here in the United States, in Miami and Washington. Every four-star general, all the chiefs of staff, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the top of CIA, Secretary of Defense, all said, yeah, this is a great idea. You know, let's, let's pick a fight with Cuba and make it look like they started it. And finally, Kennedy was the one who said, no, we're not going to do this. One of the other aspects of this that I thought was simply fascinating, having worked as an agent in the government, was the uh, house cats with covert listening devices. Let's... Well, what's great is that that's the official title, too. So someone at CIA had a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> but this program made a lot of sense theoretically. The idea behind it probably started in Istanbul, Turkey, and the, an American officer at CIA watched ever been in Istanbul, there are cats everywhere. Right. And an American CIA officer watched cats walk in and out of the Soviet embassy compound with impunity. They would just walk into the middle. They'd walk inside the doors. They'd hang out in the courtyard. And in some cases would jump up in the laps of Soviet military personnel or diplomatic personnel and just kind of sit there to get their ears scratched. And this guy was like, well, geez, if we could somehow get a covert listening device inside one of those cats – then we would have the perfect signals intelligence coup in history. And this is where the program started. And the idea behind, I don't mean just putting a collar with a bug on it. I mean, they surgically implanted a covert listening device inside of a house cat. 
the, the power pack inside its abdomen. They ran the antenna up into its ear canal so the ears could be used to funnel the sound. The antenna to send the, the signal back to a recording device was run through its tail. Uh, and then they put it through its paces. And that's where the trouble started, of course. If anyone's been around a cat for about 10 seconds, you realize that they're not dogs. You're not sure. training cats. You're not you're, training a cat is kind of, you know, a, a contradiction in terms. And the CIA ran into real difficulties when it came to that. Well, on paper, you could see how that would sound like a brilliant operation to be able to utilize those cats to get those listening devices inside the Soviet missions. A lot of the stories in this, what I warn in the introduction, and, and I felt I had to include this because it's so easy in hindsight in 2019 to look back at these stories and laugh at them. And you're supposed to. I mean, they're kind of ridiculous stories. But if you take a step back and you try to put yourself in the shoes of the people doing these, they're a lot less funny. And in, in many cases, as ridiculous as some of them sound, at the time when they were afraid of the, you know, basically annihilation of the human race by Soviet nuclear weapons, or in World War II, where a lot of these stories take place, if they were afraid of the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese marching across the world, these ideas weren't that crazy. And, you know, we come up with some ideas today that 20, 30, 40 years from now, people are going to think we're wackadoodle. And, you know, it's not fair to us for them to apply their 2050 hindsight to what we decide to do in 2019. And so I, I urge the reader to forget what they know, to forget that they know that we won World War II, to forget that they know that we won the Cold War, at least the Cold War ended without nuclear holocaust, and try to put themselves in the shoes of the people who are saying, hey, look, probably a pretty good idea to detonate a nuke on the moon, or hey, look, it's probably a good idea to create a false flag operation to Cubans or to turn a cat into a clover listening device or all the other stories in this book. Let's talk a little bit about Project X-Ray. Explain for our listeners what that is. So Project X-Ray was one that I actually think would have worked pretty well. And actually, we know through testing that it worked exactly the way the concept was designed. And this was an idea to affix incendiary devices. And at the time, napalm had just been invented. So it would be to affix napalm devices to bats and to drop them over Japan during World War II. Now, why bats? Well, a couple reasons. One is there's millions and millions of them in the southwest United States. So you'd have an ample supply. And what we know about bats is what you learned in third grade, that bats will try to find a cold, dry, dark place to hang out during the day. And in Japan, that would mean attics and easements and nooks and crannies of houses and buildings. Well, what's great about that for the United States is that most of the Japanese buildings in the 1940s were made of wood and paper. So bat bomb plus napalm plus a wood and paper building, and this program was designed to burn Japan to the ground, even without nuclear weapons. And it sounds ridiculous, but they did a field test of this, and they built a mock Japanese city, and it worked. The bat bombs burned the mock Japanese city completely to ashes to the ground. That's unbelievable. Talk to me a little bit, Vince, about how did you uncover some of these? Because I've been in the intelligence community. I know we sit around and talk about a lot of different things, but especially during this time period, how did how were you able to uh, literally walk back the cat to try to figure some of these things out? <laughs> well, I was doing research for another book, a much more wonky academic book that comes out later this year. And I was in the National Archives, and it was a World War II, early Cold War based book. And, and so I would run into some of these stories that at the time I thought, this is an amazing story. Let me forget everything I'm researching and write my book on this story because it's incredible. 
And then a day or two later, after wasting a lot of time, I'd, I'd run into a dead end and literally find the document saying this program was canceled. And the first time that happened, I was annoyed. And the second time it happened, I was pissed off. But the third time that happened, I started kind of chuckling to myself and saying, I bet there's something here. It's interesting to me to see what we intended to do, not necessarily what we did. Because as a historian, intent matters. And from that period, and this is a couple years ago, so I started kind of collecting these stories and saying, all right, I'm not going to write this now because I'm busy doing something else. And I'm going to see if I can collect some of these. And some of it was getting together with other intelligence historians in the middle of the night, you know, at our, having our favorite adult beverage and saying, okay, anyone know any cool stories like this? And of course, Acoustic Kitty came up a lot because that was something that anyone who studies the CIA, certainly from a historical perspective, has heard of. But then other ones kind of started to pop out. And, and a lot of it was just kind of trying to see who was still alive and who I could talk to and who could lead me down the path towards some of these interesting stories. And, and what's amazing is since this book came out, I have dozens and dozens of more stories that people <laughs> have come up to me and said, hey, have you heard this one or have you heard of that one? And so there's just a huge amount of these out there where some of the ones that I've been told after the fact are even more interesting. So I can't wait to someday write a sequel to this. Because there's some amazing things that we attempted or almost attempted that aren't even included in this book. We'll get back to Vince Houghton and Fred Burton in just one moment. As Houghton points out, it's easy in hindsight to laugh at these stories. But when you think what we know now and what these folks knew at the time, they're less funny. They didn't know the U.S. would win World War II. They didn't know that the Cold War would not end in total nuclear annihilation. You see... What you know at any given time affects success, whether you work for a government or the military or any business. Stratfor Enterprise and Stratfor ThreatLens help businesses identify, anticipate, and mitigate risks that emerging threats pose to their people and interests. Stratfor pinpoints evolving global events so leaders can forecast and implement protective measures with confidence. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more at stratfor.com enterprise. Now, back to Fred Burton and Vince Houghton. How about things such as Area 51? Did that surface in your research? Yes, but not in the way that a lot of people would expect. Well, your listeners understand what Area 51 actually is. But Groom Lake, you know, the Nevada yeah. test complex at Area 51, uh, was the test site for a lot of the technology that pops up in this book. Uh, in particular, things like the tag board, which was the drone that we thought was a good idea to stick on the back of an SR-71 and launch it off the back at 2.5 times the speed of sound. Uh, it didn't work all that well, but the concept made sense. Um, and it was, when, you know, 1960s talking about a automated drone with a ramjet engine flying at three times the speed of sound. Really cool idea. If you could pull it off, they couldn't pull it off. Um, some of the other ideas included some spacecraft and others that were using nuclear power. Uh, and were better than going out in the middle of nowhere in the desert and testing things that might go boom in a big way. Project Orion is one of my favorite of this, the idea behind creating a spacecraft that was not just nuclear-powered, was nuclear-bomb-powered. Essentially, it would drop small nuclear weapons out the back of the spacecraft, which would explode, and then the, the, the spaceship would ride the shockwave of the nuclear blast. And because space is a vacuum, it would never slow down. So every single time a nuke went off, it would speed up even more. And the idea was you could get to Mars in a couple days, not a couple months with this idea. But, the, of course, the issue was 
no one wants to explode hundreds of nuclear weapons in space. And how do you actually test, how do you test something like that on earth? It was very difficult to do. The CIA played this so well. If you know the story behind this, and this is not from the book, but if you know the story behind the Area 51 disinformation campaign, it might as well be. It's such a story that really belongs in this book. The idea behind the aliens at Area 51 was, of course, because people saw some of this really innovative experimental technology doing things that nothing else had ever done before. I mean, and think of if you've never seen a helicopter before. And all you're seeing is a light at night because, you know, they're testing this stuff in the darkness. And all of a sudden that light goes horizontal, which is – you expect – you're great, horizontal. That's like a plane. But all of a sudden stops and goes straight up. And you're like, oh, my God, that's no plane, right? The thing is going straight up and it's hovering and it's zooming around like no plane we've ever seen before. And if you've never seen a helicopter before, that's crazy. It's an alien, right? Or you're looking at a plane that's taking off like a normal plane does – but then disappears as it accelerates to Mach 3 within a couple seconds. Oh, my God, that's a, that's a UFO. No American aircraft or has, no earthly aircraft has that technology. Well, the A-12, the SR-71 did. And CIA was faced with an interesting question. They, they, they saw these news stories about aliens at Area 51 and had the thought, well, we need to kind of put out a public statement to stop this from happening, right? I mean, if everyone's rushing to look at aliens, they might see – our special technology. But then someone at CIA said, no, 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 no. If they're looking for aliens, they're not looking for our spy aircraft. They're not looking for our new technology. And they can literally watch our new technology taking off and landing and thinking that they're seeing UFOs. And it's a perfect disinformation campaign that the CIA didn't even need to create. The CIA just kind of chuckled and let it build its own momentum and got out of the way. Because the the whack jobs that – sorry if you're one of them, but you're a little nutty. The whack jobs that <laughs> thought there were aliens at Area 51 were going to spread this disinformation campaign for you. And all you need to do is just not deny it or kind of deny it with a wink and a nod so that people think that you're not really denying it. And you never have to worry about security again because all you can do is count on somebody calling your new top-secret aircraft a flying saucer. Uh, which is as genius as it gets. Did you get much pushback with this book uh, from the agency, events? Not so much from the agency, from a lot of the people that worked on these programs. Uh, I've gotten some emails from people saying it wasn't such a crazy idea. I'm like, did you read the introduction? Like I tried <laughs> to kind of get that point across. Um, I mean, I, I look, I wrote this book with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, you know, with a twinkle in my eye. You can't talk about these programs and take them too seriously. But no, I've gotten plenty of emails from people who were involved, whether it was with SDI and Brilliant Pebbles, or whether it was in nuclear aircraft propulsion or some of the early CIA programs. Well, you may know Bob Wallace. Bob Wallace was the director of the Office of Technical Services at CIA. He was CIA's Q right. uh, in the night in later on, not during Acoustic Kitty, but later on. And and he and some of the other veterans they liked the book very much. Actually, Bob Wallace blurbed it for me, and, and he's been very supportive. But he does have this idea like, you know, Vince, like you're kind of laughing at our, our expense. And again, I'm not trying to. You know, that's not the point. I mean, I think if you, we're, we're detached enough historically that we can kind of chuckle at these things because none of the books, I, none of the stories I write about, people die, right? These aren't stories where a lot of people die because of our mistakes. At worst, we waste a lot of money. And at worst, of course, these are ideas that if they had been put into practice would have been pretty terrible. But it's not like these are mistakes where it killed a thousand people. 
and so I'm I'm well ready and willing to take the criticism because I think that we need to look back and understand our mistakes and why we made them in order to move forward and not do it again. Well said. And I also think uh, context and, like you mentioned, intent does matter based upon uh, the threats our nation faced at the time. Students today, and this is a great example, where college students today were not alive at 9-11 or there were babies. So they don't remember how everyone felt on 9-12. And so they look and they laugh. And they're like, I don't agree with most things in the Patriot Act. And I think it was a huge you know, we, we went way too far with some of the provisions in the very beginning. But the people, kids these days, look at it and go, how could you be so stupid? This is horrible. All this thing's like, dude, you, you don't remember 912. Hmm. You, don't, you don't remember 913. And it's not an excuse, but it's an explanation. Right. And I think that history, people get on historians because it looks like we're trying to excuse bad behavior. And I'll never be one to excuse bad behavior. But I think it's important to explain bad behavior so we can understand why it happened and maybe we can prevent it from happening again or at least we can see it coming when it does start happening again. Vince, in putting this together, what uh, really surprised you and looking back on your 21 chapters uh, in Nuking the Moon, what was the one story that you set back even based upon all your experience and your research as a historian and all the work that you do that says, wow, that's just simply uh, outlandish? Well, I'm going to answer this two different ways. One is I'm actually going to flip it around and say what surprised me was that only one story was actually stopped because it was an outlandish idea. All the other ones stopped because the war ended or a technology superseded or the budget ran out. So what surprised me was the fact that these insane ideas were going to happen if it wasn't for happenstance which means that no one decided to get up and say, no, 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 we're not going to do this. That's crazy. And only with Operation Northwoods, like we talked about, was where somebody finally said no, and it was the president of the United States. So that was something that really surprised me. But another thing was an operation called Capricious, which was going to be at the very beginning of American involvement in World War II, and this was in North Africa. And after we had our first taste of bitter defeat in the, in the World War II, which was the Battle of Kazarine Pass in North Africa, the OSS was given the green light to contemplate a biological weapons attack on the Germans. And to me, this was surprising because we think of ourselves, as, I mean, even though we're the only ones to use nuclear weapons in the war, we think ourselves as being kind of the good guys. And this wouldn't have been a good guy move, yeah. right? I mean, I can understand chemical and biological weapons perhaps prior to 1972 when they were banned as a response, as a counterattack. But we were going to initiate biological warfare against the Germans. And, and you look back at that and go, woof, that's something that we, we kind of have to reassess, the, number one, the good guy image, but also reassess how desperate we were to try to win this fight against Hitler. You, you say it so well with that uh, when you look at uh, the circumstances and the fact that all of these operations uh, were moving forward uh, absent uh, other events that, that stopped them in their tracks. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the I mean, uh, the vast majority of the World War Two operations don't happen because the atomic bomb works. And that has nothing to do with people thinking they were bad ideas. It's that hey, the war ended. So we don't need to you know use these other techniques. And like the one we just talked about, the reason we don't use biological weapons against the Germans is because Stalingrad, Hitler was going to reinforce West Africa. And we were that's what we were worried about. But because Stalingrad turned into such a a, a problem for the Germans, he decided to send those troops east instead 
And so it wasn't like someone like FDR or someone, you know, like Bill Donovan said, no, 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 no. we're not going to be the country to use biological weapons in the European theater. No, it was because Hitler decided to send troops in a different direction. And, and to me, that's that's eye opening in many respects. From a technology perspective and doing this research, did you uncover things that uh, were also surprising, meaning uh, whether that be the creation of drones uh, or, uh, you know, the, the your DARPA kind of revelations? What, what were the positives that came out of some of this research that perhaps are still being utilized today on in the national security space or on the battlefield? I think there's two answers to that question, and one is that what's interesting about a lot of the technology is that some of it was way ahead of its time. Some of it was not bad ideas, thinking about them today, but unattainable ideas in the 50s and 60s, to where it's like we just we just don't have the technology to pull that off, and you know maybe we can try that again down the road. But what's what was even you know most scientists will tell you there's no such thing as failure. There's just learning experiences. Maybe that's a yeah. euphemism. Maybe that's a way to keep their funding going. <laughs> but if you kind of embrace that concept, a lot of these policies, yeah, they don't work. Like Acoustic Kitty is a great example. The CIA does Acoustic Kitty because it fails at manufacturing an artificial cochlea. Now, why do you want a cochlea? Well, cochlea is the part of our ear that helps us to drown out background noise. And you can think of an audio listening device. That's exactly what you need to do is to make sure you can get rid of wind blowing and birds chirping and dogs barking and just listen in the conversation you can listen into. Well, they couldn't do that with 1960s technology, and that's understandable, right? It's the 1960s. But today, artificial cochleas are exactly that, right? People get cochlear implants all the time. And that is based on some of the early struggles of CIA in the 1960s. The same with the chapter that is the title of the book, Nuking the Moon. Yeah, we don't detonate a thermonuclear weapon on the moon. But some of the early rocket designs, some of the early ideas to get that nuke to the moon were integrated with Werner von Braun and the Apollo program that comes later on. This is all science that leads us to bigger and better innovations. I mean, look, the chapter in the book that I got the most pushback on because it was the most recent was a chapter on Brilliant Pebbles. And Brilliant Pebbles was an SDI program that was only wrapped up in the 19 – well, arguably you could say it's still kind of tinkering about today – because so many people are still alive who worked on it. But SDI, as ridiculous as I argue it was, and as much of a trillion-dollar boondoggle it ended up being, revolutionized the computer industry in the United States. I mean, you would not have smartphones the, the way they are today without the trillions of dollars that were dumped into the private computer industry in Silicon Valley. And so I think that, again, even the quote-unquote failures ended up being positive in the end. Do you think, Vince, that the bulk of this work was outsourced to the private sector, the, your air quotes industrial war machine to come up with these uh, in cahoots with uh, private corporations? Or was most of it done uh, at uh, clandestine CIA and DOD secret bases around the country? It's a combination of both. And I, and I think that, as we know, as we get further and further into the Cold War, the privatization of Cold War technology gets more and more expansive. Um, you know, when you're looking at some of the early CIA programs like the U-2 or the SR-71, the A-12, that is a public-private partnership, of course, between the agency and Lockheed Martin, well, at the time, Lockheed Skunk Works. Even when you're talking about some of the programs during World War II, you're dealing with a public-private partnership aspect there as well. 
Now, obviously, when you're getting toward the 1970s and the 1980s, then it's a much more private side where you have DARPA funding. I mean, DARPA is a small organization, right? They have program managers that fund private corporations. And so as we get closer to the to the present day, you start to see a lot more of the, the private side working on these programs. In looking at this phenomena, what do you envision from a forecasting perspective, meaning what, what is being worked on today that you think, and I know this is speculative perhaps, uh, or, or maybe you know, but what do you think is being worked on today that would fit uh, the, the next book that you write surrounding this point? Well, I'm hoping a lot of things. Um, I mean, I, I, people have asked me in other interviews, they're like, oh, geez, you know, you, you would hope that none of this is happening today. I'm like, no, 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 no. I would hope it's all happening today. I hope that we're thinking way outside the box. And even if it's not to, to create our own and develop our own technologies that are – or missions or operations that are kind of wacky to like the, the extent of this book, it, it's to where we can defend ourselves against other people. Uh, because, one of the, again, one of the themes of this book is desperation. And we're not as desperate today as we used to be. right? We are the world's lone superpower. But during the Cold War, we had a pure adversary. During World War II, we were not the strongest military in the world. Now, our adversaries today are kind of in the shoes we were in during World War II and the Cold War. So they're probably trying and, and coming up with a lot of these programs that are outside of the norm. So we better be thinking about it also. Because, of course, the number one rule, the number one job of an intelligence agency is not to be surprised, to prevent the country from kind of getting caught with his pants down. So I'm hoping that we think of these things, and I'm sure that you're within the realm of everything from AI to human-machine interface um, to some kind of quantum quantum encryption programs that are kind of dealing with the really cutting edge. Um, but the, the, the hope that we don't know, we have no idea whatsoever of what we're doing, because we can actually kind of keep some of the stuff secret sure. to where maybe it's going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road before we have an idea of what's happening today. Vince, did you see any involvement with our allies uh, in some of these projects, or the Five Eyes, or, for example, uh, scientific exchanges with the Brits on some of these uh, endeavors from a historical perspective? There was an extraordinary amount during the war, as you would expect. You know, World War II, you know, the, the United States and the British were working hand-in-hand hand on these programs. There's one chapter in the book which focuses on trying to create artificial tsunamis, to take out the Japanese during the war. And this was a direct cooperation between the United States and New Zealand. Uh, the British actually started the research but gave up on it, and so the United States and New Zealand picked up on it. So, yeah, I mean, especially during the war when you've got, like, kind of needed co – you don't have a choice. You have to cooperate with your allies. In many cases, though, some of these programs were so top secret that – especially during the Cold War – that there wasn't a lot of cooperation with even the Five Eye countries – where we think we would share everything. Uh, in some cases, uh, they were so top secret that other agencies in the United States didn't know they were going on. Uh, and so this was not necessarily a cooperative effort in some of these, because the more people that know about something, as you know, the likelihood of it staying secret goes down and down every sure, day. Sure. Thank you, Vince Houghton, for being with Stratfor Talks today. And I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of nuking the moon and to certainly listen to vince's podcast called spycast thanks fred and, and be sure listeners to pick up a copy of beirut rules also because you can see my blur because the book is really really good as well well thank you for that kind plug 
Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Fred Burton and Vince Houghton. His book is called Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. We'll have details about the book in our show notes. If you would like to know more about how Stratfor can help you with analytical tools to visualize and anticipate areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com slash enterprise. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast, so please leave a review on the Stratfor podcast page in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. For more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Faisal Pervez. Thanks for listening.